told me to please wait. Okay. This morning, I want to talk to you uh, about something that's very, very um, dear to my heart. Um, throughout history, the doctrine of the atonement, what Jesus Christ did for us, has been challenged not only by liberals, but many who call themselves evangelical Christians. And today is no different. Um, today, many who claim to be evangelical still deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died in our place and paid the price and accomplished the atonement for us. In fact, uh, I remember doing post, uh, postgraduate studies and came across a lot of these guys. New Test and these are noted New Testament scholars. For example, uh, New Testament scholars like Scott McKnight and James Dunn, people that when you get into uh, scholarship, you start reading these men, and they're noted as great scholars, yet they decry and say that Jesus was not the substitutionary atonement. They claim that um, to, to hold to that view, they call it divine child abuse. In other words, if I was to do that to my child now, I'd be arrested for abusing my child. Why would we say that God does that to his own son? And so they claim that penal substitution is inadequate at best. Uh, they, they claim, uh, many in this camp claim that the true focus of the atonement doctrine lies beyond achieving forgiveness. In other words, forgiveness is a peripheral thought. It's not the main thrust. In fact, some even claim that this teaching doesn't come from Paul, but it was brought to our attention in the medieval times by people like Anselm and others like him. Uh, in fact, uh, another, a couple of other New Testament scholars, Joel Green and Mark Baker, wrote a book called Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. And they claim that penal substitutionary atonement is irrelevant. That's what they said. It is irrelevant. Amazing. They claim that this thinking has hurt the church and it has little to offer world missions. Think about it. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ has little to do with missions. What, have we going, what, what do we offer the world? In fact, they argue in that book that it encouraged individualism because it focuses on individual guilt and forgiveness. And it's blinded the church to social issues like racism and materialism. And in fact, many today, and I'm talking about not just scholars, but people in churches today, they decry this whole issue, claim that it is way too violent. They warn against suggesting that God the Father did something to God the Son that was so, so violent. Yet when we look at Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, the language in Scripture is filled with bloody atonement language, right from the very beginning, in the book of Genesis on through. And many of these uh, critics get around this by downplaying its importance and they reinterpret passages. For example, Scott McKnight, another scholar, in his book, Jesus and His Death, he denies that Mark 10.45 is original. 10, Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Right? He came to give his life a ransom for many. What does Scott McKnight say? He says these are not Jesus' original words, but this is Mark's theologizing. When Mark was writing, he, put it, he added this as part of his own theology, but it wasn't the words of Jesus. 
So they're not original. And so he rejects it outright. And these are scholars. We're talking about PhD scholars who teach in major universities. The evidence that they claim is, uh, yeah, you'd have to get into a lot of, anyway, I don't want to get into all the critical scholarship that they come up with, but they say yes, I would deny and say your, your, your evidence is shallow at best. Yeah, amazing. Stephen Finland in his book, Problems with Atonement, he writes, and this is interesting, it is a mistake to identify atonement as the central Christian doctrine. He says we shouldn't look at it as the central Christian doctrine. Then he says, although it is central to Pauline tradition, to 1 Peter, Hebrews, 1 John, and Revelation. Okay, So he says it is central to Paul's letters, to 1 Peter, Hebrews, 1 John, and Revelation. And here's what he concludes. He says, but these books in their entirety compose only 39% of the New Testament. That man needs a math class. 39%, all of Paul's letters, plus Hebrews, 1 Peter, Revelation? Are you kidding me? But even if we give him the argument that it's 39%, you cannot take 39% of the New Testament and brush it under the rug. So he contradicts himself. The point I'm trying to make is that substitutionary atonement is not popular today. People don't like to talk about it. It's too violent. In fact, many pastors today who believe it don't even preach it. I personally know of some. And rarely do they preach on sin and repentance and wrath and atonement. They don't like That's not what we're about. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. That's not what our church is about. It's very popular to hear that. One local pastor was asked about the atonement. And he couldn't answer it. He didn't know what it was. And his excuse, that's not what our church is about. He could not give you an answer as to atonement, let alone substitutionary atonement. Amazing. I was doing research for a dissertation on the preaching in churches, and I found this to be more normal than abnormal. I can't tell you how many churches or how many pastors that would give that kind of an excuse. One pastor of a mega church in Brandon said, we can't do that. We've got this major church of 10,000 people. We start preaching on this, many people will leave. And I'm thinking, let them leave. They should not be here. But you cannot take away the substitutionary atonement. And I believe that the problem is that sin is taken lightly. And when sin is taken lightly, the atonement is not even mentioned. And so this morning I want us to look at this issue. And I want to look only at one verse. I mean, we have a, there's so much to choose from. There's so much. The book of Romans itself. But we just don't have the time for all of that. But I want to look at one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And Paul says here, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, speaking of God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, based on this verse, and of course there are many others, as I said, but based on this verse, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
And he died as a representative in a substitutionary sacrifice. He died in our place. And all who believe in him are justified. Now what's interesting is in this text, in the Greek, this verse in the Greek is a very solemn statement. It draws attention to its significance. It was meant that when you come to it, you stop and think on what is being said here. Not something we just breeze through. And that's the danger with some Christians. When we hear this, we just, in one ear, not the other, because we've heard it so much. Uh, But when you look at the Greek text, the way it is written, it's intended to jump out and grab your attention and say, whoa, i got to stop here and think through. And the context of of this verse is important to help us understand it. We can't spend a lot of time on it, but I want to point a few things out. First, there's the emphasis on the death of Christ. It's mentioned three times in verses 14 and 15. If you read verse 14, notice, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So note, in these two verses, he mentions the death of Christ three times. Right? Verse 21 indicates how man was benefited from this death of Christ. Second, we see that all these things are from God and through Christ, right there in verse 18. All this is from God through Jesus Christ. Verse 21 expands and clarifies more what these phrases mean, that all these things are from God and through Christ. And then in verse 19, we see something of extraordinary grace, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Powerful statement. And God doesn't count those sins against us, and we see this also in Romans 8, but verse 21 explains how God could do this in light of his holiness. See, this is the massive problem of the gospel. How can a holy, holy, holy God forgive man and still be righteous and just? There has, there has to be a price paid. That's what verse 21 answers. The problem is, is we don't see it as a massive problem. Most people you talk to, they don't see it as a massive problem that God forgives us freely. Because in a sense, we tend to think that he should forgive us. We're not that bad after all. But verse 21 gives us a magnificent and profound answer to that massive problem. Now let's look at this verse. And I want you to see here in that statement when he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We come to the very heart of the atonement. This is the heart of the gospel right here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is the answer to the massive problem. God's holiness, our sin, and his forgiveness. This is the answer. This one statement. And to deny this, like those scholars I mentioned at the beginning, to deny this takes the guts right out of the gospel. You have no heart, you have nothing left of the gospel if you deny this. When you take substitution out, there is no gospel. But when we understand this, when we genuinely understand this statement that leaves us in awe before one of the most profoundest mysteries in all the universe, that the Holy One Himself would be made sin on our behalf. So the point here is that God caused Christ to be identified in some way with what was his what was foreign to his experience from all eternity. Jesus never ever had any any touch of sin whatsoever. 
And then it's hard for us to see this as awesome because we sin all the time. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine what it must be like not to have sin. But that's what Jesus was for all eternity. And it's important to point out that Paul's declaration of the gospel here cannot be reduced simply to the work of Christ. We talk about the work of Christ, and that is critical, that is important, I don't deny it. The exchange of sin and righteousness is the work of God, and all of that is true. But we need to understand that it entails something more than just the work. It involves the very person of Jesus Christ, who, in his very holiness, came into this world and was made sin for us. What makes this so inspiring is this phrase, He made him. He made him. God did this. Right? That's what makes this so awesome. God did this. This is not very popular anymore, but God took the initiative to do this. As I said before, they hate it. I remember listening to an interview one time in, in a seminary class I was in with these so-called, quote, scholars. And this is what they were talking about. And they were denying it, saying, how, how ridiculous is it that we would think that God would do this to his son? And that's when one of them said, it's divine child abuse. How dare we? Amazing. But this is critical. God made him to be this way. Why? Because man cannot do it. You and I are totally depraved. We cannot do it. We have sin. Therefore, we cannot pay the price. So out of his own free and sovereign will, God caused the sinless one, Jesus Christ, to be sin. So the point here is that this is God's plan. It was God's plan from eternity past. In the book of Revelation, we learn that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. Right? He is behind the whole plan of reconciliation. He designed it, and then he executed it. It has nothing to do with you and me and what we can do or don't do. He did it all. It was God who made him who knew no sin to be sin. See, Jesus Christ went to the cross not because people turned on him, though they did. But that's not the reason why. Jesus went to the cross not because they had these demonic spirits orchestrating the minds of the religious leaders to do this, though they did. That's not the reason why. And Jesus went to the cross not because an angry mob screamed for his blood, though they did. But that's not why he went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because God planned it and God orchestrated it. God did it. That's why he went to the cross. So God designed it as the absolutely necessary means by which only this would bring reconciliation to this world. There is no other way. He did it. Now think about this. See, I know sin. I know sin not because I can define it, though I can. I can give you a definition of it. But that's not why I know sin. And I say this, that I know sin not because I can identify sin when I see it, although I can identify it when I see it. No, I know sin because I am a sinner. Sadly and frustratingly, I sin every day. So I know sin because I sin. So my acquaintance with sin doesn't come from associating with others who sin. Not at all. My acquaintance with sin, and I know sin, because I sin. 
Like David in Psalm 51, 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So I know sin. You know sin. Because we do it every day. From the time we were born. Jesus, on the other hand, knew no sin. The phrase, him who knew no sin, points to Jesus Christ because only he fits that description. Who else can we put in there? He who knew no sin. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was ignorant of the existence of sin. Of course, he knew about sin. That's not what it means. He was not intellectually ignorant. But he knew no sin in the sense that he never personally committed sin. He was sinless. So you can almost translate this phrase as never experiencing sin. And the participle here in the Greek that's used points to the timelessness of the fact. In other words, Jesus Christ in all eternity never experienced sin. Jesus Christ in his earthly life before the crucifixion never experienced sin. He never had a bad attitude. He never had one bad thought. Think about it. Not even one millisecond of a bad thought. Can you imagine? Try that. That's hard for us, isn't it? Now, one millisecond when they were yelling at him and mocking him and spitting at him, not one millisecond of a bad thought. Amazing. I don't know about you, but if I'm getting whipped because these guys are making up stories, it'd be hard for me not to have bad thoughts. <laughs> right? Not one bad motive. Never any form, any type of sin, externally, internally, anywhere in Christ when he was on this earth. So at no time was his conscience stained by sin. Absolutely perfect. This one, this one who is absolutely perfect, was made sin. God did that. Let that sink in. Not one millisecond of a bad, negative thought, motive, action, absolute sinless perfection. It's hard for us to comprehend that. How can we comprehend no sin? I try, I can't get my arms around that. But that's him. He's the one that was made sin. Now, in this verse, Paul doesn't describe sin as a mere act, or even as mere guilt but as guilt and the power of evil that has taken up residence in us, right? He doesn't merely look, uh, or he doesn't merely speak of sin as an act of transgression, but he's talking about sin as something that has possessed us, and it's inseparable of who we are. This is similar to the instances of demon possession in the Gospels when people were demon-possessed. I'm not saying we're demon-possessed, but I will say we, we are sin-possessed. Okay, sin-possessed. It's part of who we are. Sin has to do not merely with our works, but with our whole person. The guilt and the rebellion uh, that uh, we're condemned and we're enslaved. We are possessed by sin and we deserve wrath because of who we are. But God took all of that, all of that, and every one of us and all others, who know him. He took all of that and put it on Jesus Christ 
because only he was sinless and perfect. So I want to encourage you, when you think about Jesus Christ, take time to praise him for his sinlessness. You have to give him the glory because were he not sinless, the entire scheme of reconciliation that we see here in verses 18 to 21 would be useless and you and I would be condemned in our sin if not for his perfection. So the glorious and gracious work of God in reconciling the world to himself hinges on God not counting our trespasses against us because he counted our transgressions against him. So he didn't count it against us, but he did count it against Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's substitutionary atonement. And all this would be empty if Christ himself had committed sin. So the reckoning, or let's say the imputing of our guilt to Jesus, for which then he suffers the wrath of God in, his, uh, in, in our place, is only redemptive if he's guilt-free. So praise God. Thank God that Jesus Christ was sinless. And that's the reason why Satan continually tempted Christ. Satan knew that if he could get him to stumble just once, just to even have one bad thought, he, can, he cannot die for us. But even in the midst of the temptations, he never caved. Not in his heart, not in his mind, not in his action. Praise God that Jesus Christ was sinless. Otherwise, we would be here this morning wasting our time. Praise God for his sinlessness. And scripture is clear in many places, such as John 8, Hebrews 4, and many other places, that Jesus Christ was sinless. And that's, that's important. And this should be cause of overwhelming praise and worship. Because without it, we have nothing. See, the problem is, and I saw this, I remember when I was teaching at the school, and tried to bring it up, and people always talked, and we see this everywhere we go, talk about the love of God. Everybody wants to talk about the love of God. I remember driving down the road, I even showed my wife, people put up these little signs on these phone, uh, telephone poles, love, God's greatest, what is it, God, love, love, God's greatest gift, or no, not a gift, what he is. Love is, oh, love, God's greatest ingredient. Yeah. yeah. God loves, God, love is God's greatest ingredient. And it, it, I, I get that. I tell my I'm going to get out and just rip all these signs off. It's just so frustrating. The problem is, is when we talk, and it's not bad to talk about God's love. I think it's great. But we have to understand that God in his characteristics, is love. But just as much as he is love, God is also wrath. You can't take away from wrath. As strong as God is in his love, as infinite as he is in his love, he's also infinite in his wrath. And so we want to focus on one and not the other. Don't ever think that the love of God means that the wrath of God is ignored. Because God is just and righteous, there has to be a reckoning for sin. Psalm, uh, Psalm 103, verse 10, tells us that God does not deal with us according to our sin. So why doesn't he deal with us according to our sin? Because God has dealt with Jesus according to our sin. So the wrath has to be dealt with. We cannot exclude it. It's who God is. See, grace and mercy does not mean that sin is not dealt with. 
It doesn't suggest that God merely swept our sin under the rug of His compassion. And He ignores the offense that sin brings. No, what God the Father did is He took all, all of our sin, and He counted it against God the Son. And by doing that, He provided for us the opportunity for salvation. This is what Paul means when he says that Jesus made sin to be on our behalf. See, the wording here is stunning. It's not that God caused Jesus to be sinful, but in some very profound way, Jesus actually became sin. He didn't commit sin, but he became sin. doesn't mean that he was a sinner. It's unthinkable that God would make anybody be a sinner, especially his own son. And in this verse, it's interesting because Paul doesn't mention the word cross. You don't see it here. But it is clear that the cross is intended. What Paul does is describe the mystery of God's work that happened on the cross. When we look at the cross and God's saving action, what did he do? Christ was put in our place. Substitution. That's the cross. Now, it's important to understand that Christ did not take our place in the sense of becoming merely one more sinner among other sinners. Not at all. Paul is emphatic. He did not know sin. That's emphatic. There is no sin connected to Jesus Christ. God made him to be sin on our behalf, but he was not a sinner. The point here is, think of it this way. Jesus became the sinless sinner. Okay, He became the sinless sinner so that we can be reconciled to God. Hard to think through, isn't it? The sinless sinner. And of course that emphasizes that Jesus takes our place as our substitute, a la substitutionary atonement. And remember, it's not merely the work of Jesus Christ that God offered in our place, but it is Christ himself. It's not just the work, but it's his very person, who he is, was offered on our behalf. And so in a sense beyond human comprehension, God treated Jesus Christ as sin, aligning him so totally with sin that he became indistinguishable from sin itself. And that's why God poured out his wrath. So God took all of our iniquity, all of our bad thoughts, everything, in us, connected to sin. He took it all and placed it on Jesus Christ. And so, <clears throat> when Jesus was on the cross, God treated him as if he was the sinner. God treated Jesus Christ as if he sinned all the sins of all whoever would believe. So when you lust, when you gossip, when you cheat, when you lie, and when you do all of these things, and on and on, listen all there, when you do all of that, it's as if Christ did it and God judged him for it. That's stunning. Think of every thought we ever had. Every action, every non-action, everything, every motive. He took it all. And Christ was judged for it. Instead of us. I don't know about you. That leaves me breathless. Because I know me. I know the depth of the evil of my heart. Well, I don't know the full depth, but I know how evil I can be. And Christ took it all.
Amazing. So sin, not his. Sin was credited to him as if he had committed it and he paid the price. So God charged Jesus Christ with what we did. With who we are. He was treated as a sinner deserves to be treated with all the fury of just punishment. This is why Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 tells us, but the Lord was pleased. <clears throat> Think about that. God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That word for crush in the Hebrew means to grind to a fine powder. God didn't hold back. When he poured out his wrath on Christ, it was his full, full, omnipotent wrath on his son. The very wrath we deserved poured to his son. And that's how God looks at sin, with omnipotent, crushing wrath. Now today, the word sin is barely mentioned. In fact, I've heard it called by some the S word. Because they don't want to talk about, quote, sin. Ooh, it's too offensive. It's too hard. So is it any wonder that many don't understand the atonement? And I believe that's why there's so little fear of God today. And that's why we so easily compromise with the, the S word, sin. God takes sin seriously. So seriously that Jesus became sin and was crushed by omnipotent wrath. And I want to agree with Murray Harris. He, I quote him. He said this. In a manner unparalleled in the New Testament, this verse invites us to, re, uh, to tread on sacred ground. We should never overlook the wonder and mystery of the fact that it was, all, it was the all-holy God himself who caused Christ, his spotless son, to become sin and therefore be the object of his wrath. And so I want to come across this verse. Don't just read it. Stop, think, and meditate on it, and be overwhelmed. Because it is an incredible truth. And don't miss the important phrase there in this verse when it says, on our behalf. You ought to circle that. Talk about grace. On our behalf. This means substitution. It's a mystery to me how people can take that and say, Christ was not the substitution. What do you do on our behalf? He did it on our behalf. What does it mean? But substitution. It's a mystery how they can deny it. He actually and in total reality became sin in our place. This is not fantasy. This is reality. Our substitute. And it's not popular today because people don't like to think along these terms. They don't want to think that they're that bad. Right? Man by nature is boastful. When you talk to them about sin, they shrug their shoulders like it's no big deal. I'm good. I'm, I'm more good than I am bad. And if you don't think that's out there, believe me it is. I hear it literally every day on my job when I talk to people. You know, the people who are dying. Oh, I know I'll be there one day. I did a lot of good things. I fed the hungry. You know, when I drive down the road and I see somebody asking for money, I always give them a couple of dollars. Like that is going to get you in heaven. <laughs> but they love to talk about how good they are. They always come up with excuses. And so to talk about sin and, the, and God's wrath and the substitutionary atonement, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. That's hard. 
In fact, there are times where I try to talk about it and they don't want to hear it. So can I pray for you? Yes, I, I say it in my prayer. <laughs> that way they do hear it. Jim. We have to remember, too, that sin is not what we do. Sin is what we are. Yeah. Sin is what we do comes out of what we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I said earlier, yeah, we're possessed by sin. Exactly. It's our, it's our identity. Exactly. But, you know, those who are lost, they don't want to hear that. Because you talk to them, I'm a pretty good person. I'm special. Isn't that what we try to pour into the kids today? Everybody's special. If everybody's special, then who's really special? <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. First Peter 2.24 covers this. He says, For he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross, mm-hmm. that we might die to sin, to live in righteousness by his wounds we are healed. Yeah, right. But again, nobody wants to hear that. I, I shouldn't say nobody, but the lost don't want to hear that. It's so difficult to get through to them. That, it, it's, it makes it very difficult to share the gospel. Now, note here <clears throat> the result of this. It says, so that we. Okay, on our behalf, and then notice the result, so that we. That gives us the result. The result of Christ bearing our sin as our substitute is that we become the righteousness of God in Christ. So he took our sin and became sin for us, and he gave to us absolute perfect righteousness of God. So this emphasizes here an exchange, a transfer. Okay, Think of it as, as a transfer. God setting Christ in our place, namely through condemnation and death, has as, as, as its end our being set in Christ's place in righteousness and life. So the fullness of God's wrath that we deserved on Christ, the absolute perfect righteousness of Christ on us. Unfair exchange, don't you think? Amazing. So please note that salvation takes a twofold form here. In his work in Christ, God meets us where we are, in sin. That's our identity. Sin possessed. He carries us into the place of the risen Christ, who is God's righteousness. So he meets us in our identity as sin, and he takes us and places us in a new identity in Christ as absolutely perfectly righteous. Okay? God did that in Christ. And so the transfer entails a change of being from sin-possessed wrath-bearers, if you will, to being absolutely righteous in Christ before God. So we have a new identity. Think about that. We have a new identity. Why do you think we're called saints in the New Testament again, over 60 times, again and again and again, to the saints, to the saints, to the saints? The word saints, as Pastor uh, Steve has said, uh, means holy ones. New Testament, we're called holy ones. That's a transfer of identity. We are holy ones in Christ. So Christ was made what we were, in order that we might become what he is in his resurrected life. That's salvation. That's justification. A transfer of identity from being possessed with sin and God's wrath to now being in Christ perfect righteousness. And so we are translated from the reality of sin that has possessed us to the reality of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. See, this transfer, this exchange between God and man constitutes salvation. 
and it is Christ taking our place and we standing in Christ's place. That's substitution. And so we cannot make ourselves, we must be remade by God. You know how people say, well, yeah, I'll come to, to God one day when I give up this or give up that. i got to change this, i got to change that. We think we have to do something. We can't do anything. God did it all. That's substitution. He did it all so that we were removed from that old identity. We are in Christ as righteous before God. And we are holy. This is the wonder of substitutionary atonement. We become the righteousness of God. Think about that. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. Wow. There are times I think on that and I just have to stop dead in my tracks and say, God, how and why? Why? I consider my own self pathetic, filthy, little worm. And he took this pathetic, miserable little worm and placed me in Christ so that I could stand here before you today and say, I am righteous in Christ. God did that. Not me. God did that. And all that filth that was in me was in Christ on the cross. And he paid that price. Why would we not want to talk about substitutionary atonement? To me, it's one of the most exciting doctrines that's the mystery. We become the righteousness of God. We need to talk about that more. That we become the righteousness of God. We need to get excited about that. It's the very righteousness of Christ. That's where I find great excitement. I point you to change of status. It's the basis of the new creation that uh, Paul talks about in verse 17. Galatians 3.13, there's an important parallel. I'll read that. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Paul is stating that Christ became a curse in order that blessing might come to others. This is what he says here in verse 21. Christ became uh, sin in order that others might become righteous. Paul is not focusing on Jesus' human life, but on his his death. Christ experienced the consequences of human sin. He did that. And remember, by the way, that Christ didn't rebel against this. Remember in the garden when Peter took up his sword and he chopped the, the person's ear off? He was actually going for the head. He was just bad aim. And what did uh, Jesus say? Put your sword away. He says, don't you know? that I could call 12,000 or 12 legions, 12,000 legions of angels right now? In other words, there's a whole slew, 144,000 angels, swords drawn, ready, saying, Jesus, give us the word. And he would wipe them all. And Jesus said, don't you know I have all of that at my, at my convenience to, uh, to take out? But he didn't. He didn't. Because he knew he had to bear the full weight of that wrath. So he lived a sinless life and he died the sinner's death. And we be, so that we can become that righteousness. And please understand that righteousness, when we become that righteousness of God, that's simultaneously God's act of judgment and justification. The judgment was on Christ, justification was upon us. Right? So the righteousness of God has to be understood not merely as God's act. It is part of the act, but it's also God's identity. We have a new identity. 
we are righteous in Christ. That is where we meet God savingly on the cross with Christ and we participate in a relationship of exchange from death, wickedness, and sin to life, eternal life, perfect righteousness. I just want to keep pounding that into your head because when we leave, when you leave this place, I want you to be thinking, I have a new identity in Christ. I am righteous in Christ because of what God did. So just as Christ was made to be sin, fallen human beings become the righteousness of God in Christ. He gives us his very identity. Think about it. God gives us his very identity. Perfect righteousness. Amazing. Amazing. It's stunning. Christ doesn't just become human in order to stand in solidarity with humanity. That's what the heretics, that's what, that, it's amazing. That's what they would like to say. That's why he became a man, to stand in solidarity with us and give us support. Really? What does that even mean? But that's their excuse as to why Jesus Christ came. And they cheer it. I remember listening to the interview, the guy uh, uh, leading the interview. He cheered. He said, oh, that is so wonderful. The whole world needs to hear this. I'm thinking, hear what? He became man to stand in solidarity with us. I have no idea what that, that concept even means. But this is what they teach. This is what they believe. Amazing. Now, Jesus came to stand in humanity's place to participate in the twofold imputation. And we've heard this before. He received the burden of humanity's sin, our sins imputed on him, and we receive God's righteousness. His righteousness imputed to us. So he became our substitute. He paid the debt we incurred. Now, is it violent? Yes, it is. This is what they want to avoid. And I say, no, don't avoid it. It is violent because that's what sin is. That's what sin does. Sin is violent, and that's why God hates it. So is it violent? Yes. It's ruthless, and it is violent. That's what sin is. And that's why we should hate sin. The problem is, is a small view of sin denies substitutionary atonement. And that's why I believe that the doc this doctrine is being attacked by so many, because we have such a small view of sin. Sin is violent. When we give attention and authority to all parts of the New Testament, substitution is at the center. Literally, in every, almost every letter you could see it. So the bottom line is, without substitutionary atonement, you do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ. You take the guts right out of the gospel. And so penal substitutionary atonement is a mystery, it is a glorious wonder, and it is intended to raise our hearts and our minds in adoring worship of the glorious God who brought it to pass. Let it sink in, think on it, meditate on it. If we can come to this doctrine and not be moved by the reality of this doctrine, then my encouragement is search your heart. Search your heart. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if you could come to this doctrine and not be moved by it, he, he, says, he states it boldly. You're not a Christian. I don't know if I'd be so bold. I'll leave that to him. But if you can be moved by other things, you know, and, I, and it's frustrating to me 
when I hear some Christians talk about what they talk about. They get excited about car races or, or, or TV shows or work or finance or all these other things. They get excited and they're moved by these things. If you, can get, if you are moved by these other things, but you're not moved by this doctrine, then I would ask you, take the time to really search your heart. Take the time each and every day to think about this doctrine. Think about the substitution of Christ for us and what he did and what happened to us. And let it sink in so that your heart is moved and motivated by the fact that our God did this. He took the spotless, perfect one. Took all of our sin, all of who we were as possessors of being possessed by sin. He took all of that and put it on him. So that you and I can now have his righteousness. How can you not be moved by that? I would encourage you to take time each day. Think on it. Meditate on it. I, I try every day. But the first thing I get up is to think about it and say, God, thank you for my Savior. Because I know me. I know sin. I know me. When we consider the infinite chasm that Jesus Christ spanned to become man, and then to take on that omnipotent fury of wrath in our place so that we now not only have righteousness, we now have eternal intimacy with the Father. That should stop us dead in our tracks and say, why? Amazing. How can it be? But that's what it is. And so I encourage you, please don't ignore this amazing truth. We deserve God's omnipotent crushing fury of his wrath and we didn't get it. He took every ounce of it, and in exchange, he gave us true identity. So today, think about who you are in Christ. You are a child of God in perfect righteousness. What is amazing about this is the result. What is the result? God does not hold any sin against us. Have you ever thought about that? God does not hold any sin against us. When God looks at you, he sees you covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why all your sin is automatically forgiven in the eternal sense, because Jesus Christ paid that penalty. In, in, in fact, I, I would argue that we, are, we have been permanently forgiven. I believe that's what we see in 1 John 2.12. In the Greek there, it is a perfect passive. When it says we are forgiven, literally passive means God did it. Perfect means it's a done deal from the beginning and the, the effects are permanent. We are permanently forgiven. Every sin that we will ever commit, even though we haven't committed it yet, is already forgiven. Because... He died for those too. Because see, when did Christ die? He died before we were even born. Before we even committed one sin, he died for our sin. That means we are permanently forgiven. He does not hold sin against us. This is why I tell people when we do things that we know we shouldn't do, be careful about carrying and harboring guilt. Our guilt has been paid for. Now, there's conviction, yes. The Holy Spirit works that way. But we are forgiven. Don't ever harbor the guilt where we think that God cannot forgive us. You're, you already are forgiven. Even now as he looks upon us and we commit outright rebellion against him, 
He will not hold that against us. It will never be brought up in eternity. In fact, God himself says, I remember them no more. Now, let me clarify. This does not mean that God will not discipline. God is a good father and he loves us. And if we're going to rebel, he will discipline us. But there's a difference between discipline and judgment. What's the difference? Anybody know the difference? Love. Okay. In what way? You're right. Love. Because he loves us and doesn't let us to continue in that sin. Yeah. So he disciplines us because discipline is for correction. When I discipline my kids, it's not because I hate them and I want to judge them and beat them. Not at all. I discipline them because I want to correct them. I love them. But he doesn't judge us. We can't be judged. Because our judgment was paid where? Yeah. That's why substitution is so awesome. God no longer judges me. Because it was judged already by Christ. So will he discipline? Sure. And I don't want us to think that, um, you know, hey, we can get away with sin. No, no, no. God disciplines. Oh, and by the way, I've been criticized before of teaching this at the college when I taught and said, well, your way of thinking that if we're permanently forgiven, then we can go ahead and sin and do whatever. I said, let me ask you something. If you understand this doctrine, that the holy, holy, holy God exchanged our identity of sin and placed it on his son, and he died and bore that wrath and gave to us his righteousness, knowing that, do you want to go out and say, hey, I think I'm going to rebel? The fact that he did this, this awesome work will cause me to go out and rebel. My mind doesn't work that way. Think about it. If you were standing on the road or near road and a car lost control and somebody pushed you out of the way and took the hit and they're in the hospital, would you go and try to abuse the guy and take advantage of him? No, you want to go visit and make sure his family's taken care of you. You do anything and everything you can to help that person because he gave his life for you. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did, only what he gave was a lot worse. So rather than saying, hey, this kind of teaching means I have to go out and sin, no! If we understand it correctly, it should overwhelm our hearts with joy to the point where we say, no, I don't want to sin. I want to live for his glory because he deserves it. Look what he did. Knowing that when I do sin, I'm already forgiven. I'm already forgiven. Recovered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And one day we will be perfectly holy with no sin. I look forward to the day. I think that's one of the greatest things in my heart when I think about heaven. No more sin. No more bad thoughts. No, nothing. Nothing. No more sin. That excites me probably more than anything else. See, becoming the righteousness of God is impossible for us, yet that's what he states right here. In Jesus Christ, we have become his righteousness. Beloved, that is penal substitutionary atonement. Why people would want to deny it, why people would want to redefine it, and why people are afraid of it is beyond me. To me, it is exciting. It overwhelms me, and it causes me to be stunned again and again and again that I am now perfectly righteous in Christ, that my sin will never be brought up against me again, and that my eternal destiny is fixed and set permanently. And one day all sin will be gone. I'll never have to deal with it again. So I would encourage you, think about it. And do not be afraid to talk about it. There are people who are going to look at you and think it's crazy. There are going to be people who look at you and try to uh, redefine it. They're not going to like it. It's too violent. All kinds of things. 
but don't listen to them. That's just the evil one. Okay. Substitution took place. We here this morning, now we go into the next hour, we gather together as those who are saints, those who are righteous in Christ before God, are gathering together to worship Him. Oh, how I pray that this doctrine would overwhelm your heart so that when you worship, you genuinely worship from the very bottoms of your souls because of who He is. Now, I did all of the talking, and I'm sorry that sometimes I get so caught up, I don't know. Are there any questions or comments? I'm sorry for picking up all the time. Usually I have questions. Any thoughts? I heard one time an explanation for some of these wild things that go on at the University of Hell. And it was that in order to obtain a doctorate, you have to write a paper, a dissertation, and you have to write on something that's never been written on before. And considering 2,000 or perhaps 4,000 years of study on the scriptures, mm-hmm. you're pretty hard pressed to find something new. And that leads people into uh, looking and examining some wacky ideas. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, if you've got your, your doctorate, in theology on a particular subject which is wacky, you don't consider it wacky anymore. Right. And that is true. Uh, I remember that, that may help explain. I can't remember who's well, I, I, I had one person <laughs> he, t- he 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 was telling me, he said, when you look at some of these guys with PhDs, he says, oh, what the PhD means is piled higher and deeper. <laughs> because some of this wackiness now not all of them are that way but there's, it's true there's quite a few that are out there and um, these are guys that are writing books and making tons of money on it uh, when I was doing some of that postgraduate work I had to read some of that stuff but it, it just it, it, it irritated me when you deny the substitutionary atonement I mean what, what do you have left really what do you have left what about all the animals the hundreds of Thousands, mm-hmm. maybe millions of animals who were sacrificed in the Old Testament. Yeah, I, what I want to do is. What, about that? What, what does that tell us? They never go to the Old Testament, but I'd like to ask, for example, I'd like to ask Scott McKnight if I ever see him. You know, you say, well, Christ stood in solidarity with us. That's what it means. So, does that mean that the animals in the Old Testament stood in solidarity with us when they sacrificed them? Is that what you're telling me? Are it's just. Supposedly standing in solidarity with him? Not the other way around. It's just it, some of the some of the explanations I've heard are just amazing, and I wonder, you know, wh- why why would we even want to follow people like that? But they've got a huge following. Um, it, it's just bottom line is that people do not like the violence of the substitutionary atonement. They just don't like that violence that God would do that to His Son, and it's because of us. Who wants to think that? Well, it's because of me that Jesus Christ had to go through that. People don't want to hear that. They don't. It's just, it's it's sad, but it's out there. It's out there. Yes. Any tremendous amount of information. So I would just share and encourage that we need to take time like the Puritans did to stop and find quiet time and to meditate and think it through because you can't just, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, well, like, okay, I'm glad for this reminder. But I'll forget it this afternoon. Right. I'll forget it when we do that. Yeah. I don't want to forget it. Right. I need to find that time to, to really meditate. I agree. And ponder, think about these things. 
It is. You, 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 you hit it right on the head. You're right. We need to take the time. You know, get up earlier in the morning. If you could get up 15 minutes early and just take the time to think about what it is that he did and what the implications of that is for life, even this day. Uh, you're right. We get so caught up that we sort of, you know, especially in a church like this, because we hear it all the time. When Pastor Steve preaches or whoever preaches, we hear it all the time. So it becomes so common that it's in one ear and not the other, and we don't think about it. But I agree with you. We need to take the time to think. And I'm not saying Steve should not preach on it. No, I'm glad. It's one of the reasons why I'm at this church, because there's plenty of churches that don't preach it. But we just need to take that time to really let it sink in. I agree with you. I agree with you. Let me pray, and we'll head over to the other side. Our God, how can we ever thank you enough for your Son and his absolute sinless perfection? And Lord, thank you. Thank you for that substitutionary atonement in which our true identity, sinners, was placed upon Christ, and his true identity was given to us, the righteousness of God. We are made new. You call us a new creation. You did that. And Lord, we stand in awe. And I pray, O Lord, that this truth, this doctrine, would be that which would penetrate our hearts deeply, not only now, but throughout the day, throughout this week. As we get ready to go into the service, may it be the cause of us uh, great rejoicing in, in our singing and in our praying and all that we do, that you would be uh, glorified. We pray for Steve. God, give him uh, the insight, the power, the strength to preach in such a way that our hearts would be moved by your spirit. Lord, come and hallow your name today. Make it to be seen as great as it is. May we be overwhelmed again and again. In Jesus' name, amen.